Welcome to the Excel Still More podcast. I am your host, Chris Emerson. I'm here to encourage you in your walk with God. Thank you for joining in. Today's podcast is sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John Cunningham is a friend of mine and a brother in Christ, and he can help you with financial decisions and future planning. He's been a big help to me and my family, and I commend him to you. You can reach him at 205-913-1720. I am so thankful you're here, so let's get started. Hey, welcome back, and thanks for listening in. I especially want to thank you now that we are officially in summer. All podcasters know that when routines get disrupted, listenership goes down. Certainly, summertime qualifies as one of those annual routine disruptors, so it means even more to me that you've taken the time. And today, I just want to encourage you. I want to draw you to the power of Jesus and infuse your life with untouchable hope and the deep sense of satisfaction that comes from a life of eternal purpose, especially in a world, society, and time of incredible duality. And we'll talk about that word today. Extreme highs, impossible lows. Great light, imminent darkness. How do you and I, as children of God, remain constant in our peace in a world of wildly inconsistent swings and, honestly, just a lot of disappointment. The good news is there is an answer to that. There is one particular thing that can make all the difference for you, and it should be making all of the difference for you. And here's some even better news. There are a world of people around you who need what you have in Jesus. Let's make sure, firstly, that they are observing it in our lives and then pray that God will use us to draw them to it. All right, so let's engage in an admittedly odd setup that ultimately will lead us to Jesus. Today's illustration might take you back to high school English literature, but do you remember the Charles Dickens novel, The Tale of Two Cities? It was written in 1859, but the story was set in the 1770s during the tumultuous time of the French Revolution, and the two cities in view were London and Paris. If you know nothing at all about that book, you probably know the opening line. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. The next several lines simply expound on that in various ways. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going directly to heaven. We were all going directly the other way. What he's describing is the stark duality, the opposing forces that were present at the same time during that revolution. Externally, you could observe it in the culture around you. To the rich and the powerful, it was the best of times. To those whom they were oppressing, it was the worst of times. If you were on one side of the wars that were fought, you had hope. If on the other side, you had despair. Some people were behaving in a way befitting of heaven. 
others for sure the other way. It wasn't easily defined. It wasn't consistent. It was varied and unpredictable and hard. Building upon that culture, and really more to the point of the novel, the wild highs and lows of the world around the people actually existed in each person. And maybe this begins to sound familiar. Some days I feel full of light. Other days there is nothing but darkness. Some days I feel hope for positive change. Other times there's nothing but the winter of despair. Some days I'm sure I'll be in heaven. Other days, well, don't ask. So in that way, people were behaving just like the world. In the world, every coin has two sides, both things happening simultaneously, and you never know how it's going to fall on a given day. But that was also becoming the spirit of people. Now, there is a line at the end of that long sentence that is very rarely quoted, so let me share it with you. He said, in short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. Now that's a Dickens-level way of saying, it's always like this. In 1770, that duality existed all around and in people. In 1859, when he wrote this novel, the world was exactly like that, and so were most people. If you flashed forward to the conflicts and highs and lows of the 1900s, you could not tell the difference. And we can see this even now in 2022. Now, in today's world, whether it's the best of times or the worst of times, does have an external geographic component to it. During the height of COVID, if you lived in some parts of Texas, you didn't think about it all that much. And maybe it was even a great time for your family. But if you lived in Italy or New York City, it is a terror that potentially has scarred you for life. During our time of economic woe and inflation... Some have to make a few cuts, but feel like we'll be all right. But a great many others feel utter despair and no future hopes. And as time and circumstances change, different peoples and families may go from one end of that spectrum to the other. And listen, I'm not here to tell you that we need to remedy all of that. Charles Dickens' point is, it's always that way. The world continually has these things happening simultaneously. What I'm addressing today is the tendency, even for Christians, to be like the world. All of those ups and downs, hopes and despairs, light and darkness, I've got everything before me, I've got nothing to live for, existing in us. Look, that's the way the world lives. Those battles rage on in each person's spirit, but not you. Something has to be different. God did something. And while it was not designed to balance the inequities in the material world, it most certainly has the power to balance your spirit, to keep a joy and purpose and peace in your heart so that you can be positioned to share that with others. I mean, look, this is certainly what we see in the New Testament. Would you agree with Charles Dickens that these kinds of things exist in every century, including the first century? Were there highs and lows and challenges and unpredictabilities for the life of a Christian in first century Jerusalem or Rome, to mention two cities? 
And yet, what do we read all throughout the Bible? In Philippians 4, while Paul is in prison, he says, I rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, just keep on rejoicing. Jesus provides peace beyond comprehension. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author said, do you remember when you had your possessions taken from you and you were fine about it? No, that wasn't fair and this world has a lot of darkness, but it did not find its way into you. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he talks about the decaying of the body, either through aging or persecution, he says, we grow in joy and anticipation even as our bodies fade. Why is that? What did God do to make that possible? Well, the answer is very simple, and you already know what it is. I just need to make sure today that it is not a piece of your life. It is the centerpiece of your life, and I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus overcame the grave, everything changed. Everything about your life on earth, why you're living it, how it should be used, and to what end was altered when Jesus took back his life from the grave, having offered it for others. Everything about the focus we put on getting the most out of this life got altered when we learned that there was life after this life. And when Jesus ascended into heaven and took his place at the right hand of God, and John wrote in descriptive form about the glories of where God seeks to draw us, everything about where we draw our hopes, what are our dreams, and where are we going, was forever changed in the heart of a true believer. Are you a true believer? You might say, well, of course I am. I believe that Jesus died for me and that he was raised on the third day and that he has ascended into heaven. It's great that you believe that, but it doesn't make you a true believer. There are plenty of people, even in the church, who have the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus as a part of their life. The problem is, it's way over in the corner of the page, while in the middle of the page that represents their life is a Charles Dickens paragraph. Well, it's the best of times and the worst of times. It's an age of wisdom and foolishness, belief and disbelief, light and darkness. No, it is not. Yes, it is in the cities, in the culture, in the world, but not in you. I want you to imagine a sheet of paper. On the left side is all of the downer lines, the worst, darkness, foolishness, and despair. On the right side are all of the good things, the best of times, wisdom, heaven, everything before us. And right in the middle of the page, dividing those two lists, is a beautiful red cross. The top beam reads, the power of Jesus, and all the way down the middle is the word resurrection. The resurrection has divided darkness and light, worst and best, nothing from everything, and hell from heaven. There is who I was and what I was subject to and what lived in me replaced by who I am and what is and what abides in my soul. To try and lock all of this in with an example, I want to turn your attention from the tale of two cities to the tale of two houses. The same people were in each house at different times. 
but something happened in between that changed everything. By the way, this is a full-length sermon at the Lindale Church of Christ page or website or podcast if you want more biblical content, but it starts with the 11 apostles locked away in a house after Jesus died. The text reveals that they were mourning and weeping, that even when someone came to them to tell them that Jesus was raised, they refused to believe it, they did not understand what was happening, and they were terrified of the Jews. It was quite actually the worst of times for these men. They had just lost Judas, who had become a betrayer and had hanged himself. The last interaction Peter had with Jesus was when he denied Christ three times and Jesus looked him squarely in the eyes. Since then, they had watched their rabbi be put to death on a cross. The world still had its ups and downs, those who were victorious and those defeated, but this was a house filled with utterly defeated people. But then came the resurrection. And not just Jesus coming up from the grave, but him appearing to them and chastising them for not believing in his plan, for distrusting his promises and giving in to the winter of despair. They began to rejoice in him and worship him. Some days later, they watched him ascend into heaven. And when we go to Acts 1, we have those same men as well as others gathered in another house. But everything was different. They were united. They were encouraged. They were praying. They were hopeful and confident. There was a state of great expectation. They knew that Jesus was alive and that even in a dying and disrupted culture, God had a plan for their lives. The Holy Spirit fell upon those men and they began preaching. And what were they preaching? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's on nearly every page of the first set of chapters in the book of Acts. They no longer mourned or wept or disbelieved, and they were no longer afraid. Even when the officials told them that they must stop teaching, threatened to and eventually did beat them, they said, Jesus is alive. There is life after this. We're giving up this life just like he did because we believe in the next. Our Christ is risen and ruling. You in the culture, in the world, in the government, you do what you've got to do. But as for us, we will serve praise, and rejoice in Jesus. Two houses, one filled with tears and hopelessness, the other filled with unity, joy, and confidence. The difference is simple. The resurrected Son of God became the centerpiece of their lives and divided who they were from who they became. Well, can I ask you a question? Which house do you live in? Or to think more in terms of your home address, which house do you walk out of into the world every day? A house of tears because there is no resurrected Jesus? Or a house of victory who knows exactly who you serve and the nature of his kingdom and the unbelievable, stable promises that exist in your heart today and will sustain you forever? I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is about the resurrection of Jesus. And there are really only two choices here. 
Either our faith is worthless, we're still in our sins, and we are a pitiful group who is feigning some sense of hope, where in truth we're just like the world, up and down with the waves, with no security, or Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who die who brings resurrection of the dead and the promise, verse 22, that we will all be made alive, that he will hand over the kingdom of which we are a part to the God and Father when he has abolished all of the temporal kingdoms and authorities around us and even abolished death. If you're a Christian, I need you to know you can't do both. You can't be hopeful and hopeless. Your life can't be light and darkness. In Christ, there is only light if he has been raised from the dead. Let me give you a couple of thoughts to close with here. Number one, that makes us incredibly different than the world around us. People will begin to notice your unwavering stability, and they will want to know what your footing is established upon. There is a lot of sandy ground in this world, in every generation, but Jesus is our rock but also it will infuse you with a sense of purpose and direction. To help with that, I want to tell you about the end of the Charles Dickens novel. There was a character named Sidney Carton. Had a very up-and-down life, a lot like the world around him. He lost out on a love triangle where another man got the girl. His life lacked purpose and hope. But at the end, he did something noble. The other man in that story was falsely accused and about to die at the guillotine the following day. So Sidney went in and drugged him and took his place and died in his stead. And here is what Sidney Carton said at the end of this novel. It is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Do you see what happened there? Even a small sense of purpose and self-sacrifice brought joy in his death and the expectation of rest. How much more, you and me, who serve a Jesus who gave his life for us, who was raised to give eternal hope to us, serving him and others is a far, far better thing that I do than anything that I have ever done in his name. And where I am going in following him is far, far better a rest than anywhere I've ever known. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has changed us. It has filled us with purpose and direction. We know why we're here and what we're using this life for and the rest that is coming, but only for those who believe. So which one is it? Where do you live today? In a life with a dead Savior or a risen ruler? It's time to make your choice between the two houses. Thank you so much for joining in today. If you enjoyed this program, consider sharing it with your family and your friends. And if you're just in search of deeper Bible study or you want to share the message of Jesus with the children in your life, remember to go to creationtorevelation.com. This wonderful company, run by Christians, provides beautiful illustrations of Scripture from beginning to end, putting the spotlight on Jesus. And remember this, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, excel still more.